Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Sharon Ma celebrates the diversity of publishing today because she's one of the writers who has challenged the old formula. Her historical series set in her homeland of Guyana and based on her own family story of a white woman marrying a black man was rejected by big name publishers as not commercial enough, even though they'd snapped up her first book. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Sharon talks about how the decade of rejection she faced before she finally won through made her a better writer and shares with us a magical day she spent with Muhammad Ali in Peru. But before we talk to Sharon, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Sharon's website and books, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear, please go online and leave a review for us and subscribe. But now, here's Sharon. Hello there, Sharon, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Yeah, good morning, Jenny. Glad to be with you. And I think you're speaking from Germany, are you? No, no, no. I don't think you're up to date. I moved to Ireland a year ago. I'm in Ireland now. Oh, that, yes. No, sorry, I am not up to date. Perhaps this, uh, maybe there's a bit of, out-of-date information on the web. I'm not sure, but, oh, Ireland would be a wonderful place to live. That's wonderful. Look, how did you get started writing in fiction? Was there a a once-upon-a-time moment for you when you just felt you needed to write fiction or you wouldn't have achieved your purpose in life, so to speak? Well, I've I've always been a voracious reader, and I always had this idea that maybe I could write something one day, but I just thought it's just too much... I just can't do it. You know, it's um, it's too hard. I've got to figure out a plan and I can't do that. I didn't feel up to it. Yes. And um, so I was writing when I was about eight or nine. I used to write children's stories about, you know, children with horses and dogs and having adventures and all that. As a la Enid Blyton, that was my favorite writer as a child. So um, I had this idea at the back of my mind, but I just didn't feel, have the confidence to get into it and just to actually start and so I was actually um, late, in my late 40s, when I began thinking, oh, maybe I could do it. You know, maybe I can write something myself. I, I, I had read a book um, called Becoming a Writer by Margaret Cohen. And she says, the stories we want to tell, they are in us already. They're deep in us. They're made by their subconscious mind. And uh, we can access them if we make the effort. And that was like a light bulb moment for me because, you know, I'm a, I, I meditate and I knew that there is something inside me which uh, which I can access. So that really kind of lit me up and got me fired. And so I started when I was um, in my, and I was about 48. And how did you choose what you were going to write then? I gather that you are a more of a fly by the seat of your pants writer Absolutely. So did, you, <laughs> did you just approach it in that way with your first book or how did you start off? 
I started off, um, I knew I wanted to write a book set in Guyana, which is the country I grew up in. It used to be British Guyana. And I really knew I had to write stories set there because when I was growing up, there was nothing about our own culture. There was all the books I read as a child were always England and English people, English children and, and, and strawberries and cream and all that very English things, daisies and I don't know, tulips, and we don't have that in Guyana. So I wanted to have a really authentic Guyanese setting with Guyanese people who are Indian, African, you know, very, very, very um, diverse. So I knew that was what I wanted to write. I didn't know exactly what, so I just sat down and began writing. And it just came as I wrote. So it was kind of, for me, it was like a, a miracle almost that I could actually write a story just out of, out of nothing. You know, it was really a, a light bulb moment then. Yes, we share a very similar um, experience, I guess, both being in col- colonies, British colonies, because exactly. I, I also, you know, really loved Enid Blyton, but I also didn't feel as if the sorts of stories she wrote could happen in my own country sort of thing you know it was a removed environment yeah exactly yes exactly Mm. now the quint series that you've done three or four books and i think or maybe more is set in 20th century early 20th century guyana and they trace the life of winnie cox who is a rich sugar plantation owner's daughter and a white woman who marries a poor black postman Yes. And that, that's quite a big challenge for a beginning writer to tackle in the first place, isn't it? Because there's a certain level of disbelief that that could really happen. How did you, yes. it was a very big thing to tackle as your first book, wasn't it? Well, that wasn't actually my first book. My first book was Of Marriageable Age, which um, was published oh, by, Harp- okay. by HarperCollins mm. in 1999. So um, I had, um, I, so I had some experience with writing. And I had uh, actually, when I said, you know, I, I, do, I don't know what I'm going to write in advance, but in, with the Quint series, that's quite, that's not quite true because I had, um, I had this, I, I had seen this photo of my grandmother's wedding and my grandmother was a white woman and she married a black man. Oh, really? And I, and I thought this is extraordinary for the time. I mean, my father was born in 1912, so she must have married in 1910. And this was for me extraordinary. And these very well-dressed, very cultivated um, people in this wedding photo, and she was wearing a beautiful white dress. He's wearing a, a tuxedo, you know, a black uh, tie and, and a very, very elegant looking, very dapper. So I thought this, is, this would make a, a great story. And I had... Um, I had an aunt who actually told me some of the details of her background. So I did have a kind of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, um, uh, an idea of how that story would go vaguely. Not, I didn't stick to her real life, um, life but I, I, I took the details of her life and went from there. And it's lovely that you did have that. You had an actual real event that you could um, hang something on. So that's really very special. Yes, exactly. And you know, people, uh, I've had people say, oh, that could never have happened. A white woman marrying a black man, he would have been lynched. He'd have been, you know, she'd have been killed or whatever. And it would have, it wouldn't, it wasn't, it wasn't legal in those days. But these are all Americans and they're going, they're, they're kind of assuming that Guyana was like America, but it wasn't. And uh, it was possible because it happened. So, you know, yeah. and that is what I wanted to, I wanted to write a story about that because I thought it was extraordinary. And I thought it must have been, you know, very difficult for her and very brave as well 
because I know that there was racism even in my day in Guyana. And, you know, and so I knew back then in her time it must have been even worse. And she made that step. So I thought it was a great story. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And so you had a marriageable age. Tell us a little bit about, about, about that first book. Yeah, well, I had been living in India for some time when I was um, a young woman. And I love India. I had a great experience there. And um, so in I wanted to get to bring out the beauty and the, you know, we have lots of cliches about India in the West. And uh, there is also a different side to India. There is, the, India has all extremes. So I wanted to write a story which would bring out the beauty and the depth of Indian culture as well as the, the atrocities that happened. So a marriageable age home, it covers both sides of India, the terrible things that would happen to it happened to the main character, as well as some of the depth of Indian life. And it also um, jumps from India to Guyana. So we've got three storylines in that book, which are all woven together. So three different characters and their lives are woven together. And at the beginning, you don't know what they have in common because they're quite different, different eras, different continents even. So the reader is a bit um, uh, confused at the beginning. That's um, a few re reviewers have said they were confused after they jumped from India to South America and then to England. So, but um, in the end, it all comes together. And um, yes, and that was my first book, and it was immediately um, taken up by an agent and a publisher, and it had a lot of um, foreign, foreign, foreign um, translations. So it was a successful book, I'd say. Yes, most certainly, and I'm impressed that with a book that's set in, a, in unusual locations, probably for that time, um, that you did find a traditional publisher who snapped it up. It's a real tribute to your writing that that was the case. Did you find some difficulty with the fact that your locations were a bit out of the ordinary? Yes, of course. I mean, India is fine. India was like a, a very trendy at the time and is even today a little bit trendy. Everyone wants, everyone knows India. India has a great history and great stories and you have Gandhi and all these things. So everyone knows India. India has this kind of exotic feel to it. But Guyana, you know, nobody's heard of Guyana. Nobody has, you know, it's just like something out of some exotic, it's an is it in Africa? Is it Ghana? What is it? And the most people have heard is of this um, Jim Jones mass suicide in 1978. Mm. That's when Guyana made the headlines. And that's all people know about Guyana. Um, at least people in England or in America or in Canada or wherever. That's all they know about Guyana is J Jim Jones, Jonestown, mass suicide, you know. So um, I wanted to just get back there and show what a normal life was in Guyana when I was growing up. And um, yeah, that kind of had a connection to the Indian story. So I was able to connect, weave it into the Indian story, which gave people a kind of a, a kind of a entry into Guyana. Yes, and I think you've said that when you had somewhere other than Guyana, the, the publishers were quite happy, but when you started to write books that were focused solely in Guyana, they were less enthusiastic. Oh yes, very much so. They, I mean, I, was, I got rejection after rejection for 10 years when I wrote these books and I really had to write them because I really wanted to, it was like a, 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 an urge to write books set in Guyana and to tell my grandmother's story in a different, you know, of course in a different format, but um, I really had to write them. So what happened in the end? You managed to find a publisher. 
Yeah, well, I wrote, I kept writing these books and putting them aside and starting, trying to get them published, failing to get them published, starting again. And then in 2000, and around the 2012, 13, 14, that's when the digital age came into being and people were, publishers were publishing um, digital books, digital first books, which are less risky for the publisher. Mm-hmm. So um, that's when I, first of all, I, I, um, I, I submitted my first book of marginal age for republication to Bukuchur. And because it was out of print by that time, it was like 10 years had passed since it was first published. So they snapped it up and then they went ahead and published all the other Quint books, which was, of course, fantastic. Yes. Now, your most recent book, which we'll spend a bit of time on, is The Violin Maker's Daughter. And it is a step away from the other ones that you've done. Um, It's set in Germany and it's, once again, a slightly forbidden love type of story between an English woman and a German man during the Second World War. Now, once again, I thought to myself, I wonder if that kind of thing really did happen. I guess it must have done because we're all human, but it was something that I'd never really thought about before, I must admit. So this is once again the attraction of a a relationship that is very high risk. Did you have any other um, evidence that, that these liaisons did take place? Well, I think forbidden love is um, it's 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 it is um, it's an ongoing trope in literature that yeah. you know this conflict yeah. because yeah. you need you need to have conflict in a story yeah. and a love story yeah. especially needs a conflict. So that is one of the main conflicts you'd find, um, whether it's race or or nationality or something like that. Yes, you'll find or or, or class, of course, a poor woman, a rich man, or or vice versa. I mean, it's in, it's in in many books, and you have like um, Nicholas Sparks. What's that book? Um, the Notebook. That, that book of his. Yes, the Notebook. That's also rich woman, uh, rich woman, poor man. You know, it's yes. it's it's um it's the same thing. It's the same trope, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yes. So this is this is just in that in that in that culture kind of thing in that in that in that vein. You did. And um, yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say you did one, the Soldier's Girl before The Violin Maker's Daughter, which had a similar setting. So you'd done a lot of research on the topic already, hadn't you? Yes, I had already done the research for The Soldier's Girl. It was because um, that was a totally new genre for me at the time. So I, I had plunged into that very, very, um, very detailed um, research for that particular era, that particular time, just at the end of the war. So I already knew a bit of the background for the violin maker's daughter. So it didn't require too much new research, which was good. And were you influenced at all by the fact that you had been living in Germany? I'm not quite sure how long for, but you were familiar with the country, weren't you? Yes, of course. But um, the the book is actually set in Alsace, which is on the border in France. So... um, and I had lived in Alsace, borders to the state of German state of Baden, and that is, uh, and it is quite near to uh, the, the town of Freiburg. And I had lived in Freiburg during my studies for four years, which is it's a beautiful town and it's quite near Alsace. So I, I was very happy to bring this this beautiful town into the story, and I set part of the story in in Freiburg. Yes. And I mean, I, I lived. I lived actually four to three years in Germany, and I actually I am German. I have a German passport, <laughs> so um, it was. Um, it's. I was able to get that side of it pretty, um, pretty get pretty well. Yes. Yeah. And the, what did the research 
throw up when you were doing the research? What did you find anything that you hadn't expected to find? Oh, very much so, because um, I, I knew that Alsace had been uh, significant, um, significantly Im- impacted by the war, but I didn't know the details. So what I, what really uh, really struck me was that Alsace was actually the last province of France to be liberated. And there was um, this area around Colmar, which is the city where this novel is mostly set, that was the very, very, very last area in France to be liberated. And it was a a scene of extreme fighting, a lot of death, a lot of violence at the very end of the war. That was in um, February, January, February 1945. And Colmar was the very, very last town in France to be liberated. So, I mean, you can imagine when... Colmarth was finally liberated. That, that, like, that was the end of the war for France. I mean, that was they're gone. The, the Germans have gone. France is free. So of course the whole city burst into 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 joy and to revel as into celebration and singing the Marseillaise. And you know, it was really, really um, a joyous time. So um that was what I discovered about Alsace. And of course, the whole background, it's a it's a beautiful, very, very um, traditional kind of area with beautiful villages, you know, half-timbered houses and cobble sh- cobble streets, and it's beautiful hilly area with beautiful sunshine, hills covered in wi- in, in in vines. It's really really a fantastic area, and I loved it when I you know, I used to go there quite frequently. So it was just this this um, this contrast between this beautiful fairy tale country and war, and you know having it devastated by war and villages raised to the ground, and so that was a really good, interesting, interesting setting for me. Mm. Um, you must be heartened by the fact that the diversity has become a bit of a. A, a hot word, a hot topic, right through writing these days. I think particularly in romance, there's this real feeling that we need more diversity. You've been just at the right place for that, to really be able to take advantage of that, haven't you? Yes, of course, yes, yes. Well, I mean, I, I come from a, a country which has <laughs> six different races, three different official religions, and everybody somehow has had to learn to get along, get along with each other. So the, um, coming to the, to the West and coming to, especially to Germany, where I, at the beginning um, I encountered a lot of um, racism and being kind of like an outsider and not people not knowing how to really meet me and how to talk to me and being treated like um, somehow less. Um, so I'm very, very happy that now it's, I mean, even in Germany, in Germany, it's really in to be different now. So it's it's a big change. And it's, I'm glad it is also in literature as well, in books. And it's coming out more and more in books that you have main characters who are not um, English, not white, not, they're different, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, mm-hmm. that's a big change from when I first um, began writing or even before that. Yes, yeah, so now... Um you have been trad published and you've, I think, have you ever done, I don't know if you've ever done indie publishing, but where do you sit now on the spectrum? I guess you'd be a hybrid author, would you? You do some trad publishing and some more indie, is, or how does it work? No, 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 it's some, I'm mostly, I'm almost completely um, with Bookature now. All my books are published by Bookature. And I've, this is my ninth book coming out now. I've only done one, I've only published, self-published one book, which is, um, 
actually, it's my. It's for me. It's very close to my heart. It's. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Mahabharata from in the Indian epic. Oh yes, I had. I've heard. Yes, I have heard of it. I think I did yes. dip into it many, many years ago. But yes. Yes. Well, I I love this book. I read this when I was when I first went to India as a twenty three year old, and I just love this story. But um, there are many, you know, it's the, the original is a long, long thing in Sanskrit. It's about 18 volumes long and really long and very, very convoluted with lots of side stories and lots of, lots of different, uh, quite boring expeditions into, I don't know, it's, it's very, very long. But it has a central theme, a central story, which I which blew me away. And I thought if we could just get this central story into a really good format and the, uh, and bring it out so that it shines, so that it's like a diamond. You know, it's really beautiful, a wonderful story. And um, all the versions I read of this central story, they didn't satisfy me because they were, some of them were written like a bit like a soap opera or I don't know, mm. or they didn't get the real, what I thought, what I feel is the real message of this book or the real central story of it. So I made up my mind I would write this, rewrite it in, in a different version, in a in a more um, comprehensive version. And I started that book when I was in India in the 1970s. I started it on a typewriter and I just kept on at it, writing it, rewriting it over the years and putting it away for a year or two and then start bringing it out, rewriting it, improving it. And then in the end, I thought, well, I could might as well self-publish this book you know it's a it's a, it's um Mahabharata is well known the, ty- the, 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 the title Mahabharata so people will find it if they're looking if they're searching on Amazon they'll find it somehow and they might read it so I did that and uh, so it's there it's not I never tried to, in any way to promote it I just let it linger on Amazon so it gets like three or four sales a, a month and it's selling it's get it's had really really good reviews and um, maybe one day it will find a publisher. But um, I'm really happy with that, that it's out there and people can read it if they want to. Yeah, that's lovely. That's a nice place to turn to talk about your wider career because you've had a very freewheeling, adventuresome life before you settled into your writing. And I, I read somewhere online that you'd even ended up in a Colombian jail overnight at one yes. stage. Um, tell us a little bit about those days. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I, my first job in Guyana was as a journalist and um, I, um, I got a bit bored after a year or two. So I said, okay, I'm going off to Brazil. And two of my friends said, okay, we'll come with you. So we just went off. We had a bit of savings and I sold, I had a motorbike, which I sold for the money. And we just set off with, you know, backpacks and nothing much else, not not much, not much wisdom, I have to say. (laughs) And we just plunged off into the, into the, not into the unknown, into the, this vast continent up the Amazon and into Peru and up hitchhiking through the, you know, through the Andes and all kinds of things and sleeping here and there, wherever we found a place just to lay our, our heads practically and uh, living on a hippie commune for a while and all kinds of things. And yeah, I ended up in this Colombian jail, as I said, <laughs> <laughs> which was a, it is a story in itself. I'm not going to tell you right here. It will take too long. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I, I have gathered that you ran into Muhammad Ali at some stage. You must tell us how that's, that happened. Oh, that's right. That, that was in, in um, Lima. 
And um, I was with these two friends. We were just walking down a road and I just saw this huge crowd of people outside a hotel. And I didn't know what was going on. They were all like Peruvians, you know, quite Peruvians are quite short Peruvian men when they have all this shiny black hair. And towering above them was this black, big black man. And I recognized him. That's Muhammad Ali. So I said, hi, brother. And he said, oh, hi, sister. And he said, come here, come here. So he called me to him and he said, um, do you... Do you speak Spanish? I said, yes. So he said, well, could you talk to these people and tell them something or the other? So I said a few words. He said, well, come on up to, come on up to my room and let's, let's have a chat. So he took me up to his suite, which was right up on the, you know, in the penthouse. And they were, he was amazing. And he was, he was so, he was so lovely. He was really, I mean, he had me in tears of laughter the whole morning. There were two other people there who had, who, like me, he had picked up off the, off the street practically he said, this is my interpreter, some, some woman, and this is my translator, some man she, he, he just happened to run, run into. And he, he, like the three of us were like his friends for that day. It was amazing. It was quite, quite extraordinary. And we had lunch with him. And then he said, OK, come on, we're going to the, he had an invitation to go to the Gold Museum, which is a private museum with all the Inca artifacts in Lima. He said, we're going there. So we had this getaway, you know, going going through the cellar of the, of the hotel in, in a getaway car so that so the press wouldn't follow us. It was, it was quite an adventure. Sounds amazing. And, yeah, and it was, he was so funny, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe how funny he was. And he talked and talked and talked and talked and boasted, you know, about himself it's um and but you know when he's boasting you just have to laugh because you know he's just being funny yes yes and yeah he is really he was such a great guy it sounds lovely <laughs> that sounds really fun yes look yeah. is there one thing that you've done more than any other in your career that you would credit with your success I mean anybody who's published 10 9 or 10 books that's amazing in my in my in my assessment yes well um I said I go to India regularly. Well, in India, I learned to meditate. And I think that is the secret of my being able to tell stories quite easily. I mean, I just have to kind of like, I, I believe that there's a, a place of creativity in, in each of us. And um, meditation helps me to get into this place. It's in the subconscious mind. It's quite deep inside. And meditation helps me to get into there and let those stories speak for themselves. And that is my, that is my personal little secret. Which is not it is actually everybody's secret, and that's I think that's how people some people have it just automatically they have it they have it naturally, they don't need to meditate and they just can tell stories and I think that's because they have this this special access and um or you know musicians who who be, who are composers uh, without knowing how and haven't learned it they can just compose beautiful songs or beautiful music I think that is there is a source of creativity within all of us. And some of us can access it naturally, and I needed to learn to meditate to be able to actually make the effort to find that and to be able to write stories. And that is my my own little secret. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Look, this is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it's partly predicated on the idea that people these days, when they discover a writer, they like to keep reading their work. Sometimes it's in a series, oh. sometimes it's in standalone books, but they recognise somebody's... Um, voice and they mm. like to continue with them. As you, as a reader yourself, who have been the people that you like to binge read and who are you reading today? 
Well, um, as a child, of course, I was in Brighton. Mm-hmm. And later, later on, when as, a, as an adult, I used to had a, a time when I really would read everything written by John Le Carre, all these spy stories, which I think is now coming out a little bit, and maybe this all this spy, espionage, espionage. <laughs> yes. So, I had a really, uh, I really loved his work, and then um, various authors over the years. Uh, um, more recently, Lucinda Riley, I love. Oh, yes, I've been reading um, her, yes. Yes, mm. her Seven Sisters series, mm. I've been reading all of those, mm. one after the other, when they come out. Um, I love in everything set in India. There's Renita De Silva, who I've, I've read all of her books, and historical fiction writers. Um, Lizzie Page is one of them. Um, Debbie Ricks is another one of them. They write beautiful books. Uh, yeah, that's, those are the ones I've mostly read recently. That sounds wonderful. So it mainly is historical that you read or do you branch out into other areas? Uh, mostly historical. I, I really like to get back into the past. I'm at past and relive the past because I, I, I'm not, I was, I, history fascinates me, but I've really found history lessons, just reading the facts, quite boring. So historical fiction lets me relive that history as within a character so it has to be authentic, but it has to be like I can feel what's happening. I can feel what it feels like to be a woman living through a war in England in, during the Blitz or in France. You know, I can really, I want to really be able to experience it, and literature helps me to do that. Yes, I'm not, I'm not so keen on contemporary fiction because I, I know I'm here now, so I know what's going on here, so I don't really need to <laughs> read about it. <laughs> <laughs> we are starting to come to the end of our time together. So when you circle around, you look back over your writing career, at this stage, if you were going to do it all again, is there anything you would change? I think um, if I had known when I um, <laughs> when I started to write my Guyana books that they would, every single one of them would get rejected for 10 years and I'd be writing books that would only get rejected for 10 years, I think, oh, gosh, no way. I'm going to just write what they want me to write. <laughs> so that's not very – That's. I don't know if I would give that advice to everyone else because um, making the, having that experience of rejection, it really – built me as a writer so I don't think I think it was a good thing I I, I did I did what I did but I think if I, if I had known I wouldn't have done it. Yes I was going to ask you what advice you'd give to a writer just starting out and that sort of fits rather nicely into that doesn't it? Yeah. Yes I just just stick with what you love what what's in your heart I think that is in the end that is the best way to go I mean you can always write commercial write, write what's in trend but if you don't love it if you don't really love it and it doesn't come from your heart, it won't have that spark of energy that will entice a reader to love it as well. You know, and it's, I think there's something that goes over into your writing, which is which you can't define, and that is what the reader feels. And because I love historical fiction, I, I write it as well, yes. and I think that's what comes through. Yeah. And what? Did, so I would say, go go with your heart. Yeah. What did your publishers want you to do at that time? Could you do you remember what they were? saying they would like you to do? Um, I, I know that my editor really likes really likes or even loves my work. So um, I, um, she's very, very keen on on um, everything I've put forward, everything I've suggested. She's very, been very keen on. She suggested I try World War II fiction. And because I love it myself, I said, okay, I'll do it. Yes. But um, it, it, the impulse came from her. But um, I did... 
I, the thing is, I didn't think I, because I didn't know enough detail, so I had to do the research. But um, I'm really glad I got that impulse from her because I love writing it as well. So what that brings us very nicely to that question of what is next for Sharon, the writer. What what projects have you got on, say, over the next 12 months? Well, I've just got a new two-book contract from Bookature. Again, it's um, it's fiction. It's a World War II fiction. One is, uh, again, it's a third book set in Alsace, which I have just started. Different A different story, but also in Alsace, because I love this, and I know this area, and I love it. And then the second book in that contract will be something also World War II, but maybe something different, uh, um, that we'll leave Alsace and do something quite different. I haven't thought about it in detail yet. But I'm thinking, I'm letting it just um, simmer inside me, and we'll see what comes up when I've done this first, when I finish this book. And you mentioned that you weren't going to tell us the Columbia Jail story just tonight, but um, you do have a thought of doing a memoir at some stage? I, ha- I actually have written a memoir. Oh, right. um, I did it, uh, yeah. Because in, when I got back to Guyana after that travel, I, I wrote I wrote down, um, I, I wrote a series of articles about my experiences. And uh, I was very fortunate because I would have forgotten them, but my mother saved all these articles and they're quite good. So I, I wrote them all into a book a few years ago, but I haven't tried to get it published yet. So I could work on that. <clears throat> and that would be a memoir. And that tells the story of the Colombian jail. <laughs> 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 so that's something that we just could perhaps um, look forward to. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> it's quite an adventure story. <laughs> we haven't mentioned the Ecuadorian fisherman who wanted to marry you either, have we? Oh, yes. That's another one. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's another part of the adventure. <laughs> so, Sharon, it's been wonderful talking. Where can your readers find you online? Well, I've got a website. It's SharonMass.com. And, um, I mean, if they just Google my name, they'll find my um, different things. Um, they're, they're, there's a Facebook account. It's Sharon Mass Books. Yes. Uh, yes, or, or Sharon Mass Author, one of those. Sharon Mass Author, I think it is, or Sharon Mass Books. I think it's Sharon Mass Books. And I'm on Twitter, but I don't go there very often because I don't really like Twitter very much. I think it's a bit of a of a very <laughs> strange place. Um, but that, those are the through my website, people can contact me. There's a contact form if they want to write to me and I'll have questions they want to ask. They can contact me. I'm very happy to answer everything. You like to interact with your readers. Oh, yes, yes. I love readers. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. It's been fabulous to talk. And um, any of the details about your website and your Twitter handle and all that kind of thing, we will put those in the show notes for this episode so people will be able to very easily find you. So there's no problem there. It's been wonderful talking and thank you so, so much for being part of the podcast today. Thank you for giving me this, uh, this, this, this time to talk to you. It was lovely questions, very interesting questions and uh, I'm very happy to have been here. Thanks so much, Sharon. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. 
Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.